think I don't I might did I, I can't remember if I missed last week or the week before it was the week before week before okay so we so we are on page 124 then 148 148 <laughs> what was last week that I missed was it yeah you're on oh, page okay we're gonna finish this book in about five minutes here We're on 148. We're on 148. Our love of novelty. Oh, okay. Huh. Okay, so we're going to finish this book actually soon. I better get something out to the sangha about the new book. And we're not meeting next week. We're not meeting next week? Because of the intensives? Oh, because of the intensive, right. Okay. All right. So Clark, Donna, Glenn, Kim, Paul, Peg. Okay. I'm always after Paul. I'm always after Clark. Yeah. Usually Barbara's in front of me, but. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know where Barbara is. Okay. Our love of novelty is an expression of our endless wanting and an evasion of the overwhelming impermanence of the world. An attempt to enjoy and discard each bright prize before time spoils it. To jump toward each promising spark and landing, instantly get ready to jump again. We addict ourselves to distractions in order to avoid worrying about what lies beneath the unexplained ferment of appearing and disappearing formations. Although we like to be at peace, we continue to rush the momentary excitements because we suspect the attainment of peace require the overthrow of our habits and the constant terrible fears. Certainly real improvement in our, in our lives can only come about through strong effort directed at unwholesome roots of action, which are greed, hatred, and delusion. But at the same time, the doubts which hold us back are weaker than they seem. The mind has closed the links of fear and the mind can cut them. The ancient and continuing experience of travelers on the path of Dhamma is that the effort to get free puts new, encouraging light in the gloomy regions of the mind. Like a golden thread glinting in the tapestry, the theme of joy runs through Buddhist history. Not only joy in the final victory, but even in the beginning stages of Buddhist practice when life, long a patchwork of guesses, begins to acquire a purpose. The first disciples of the Buddha were not morose, groaning hermits. They were vigorous people, rejoicing in the work that they were doing, congratulating each other on their good fortune, elated to find that the worst of the contemplative life was in the dread of coming face to face with their ignorance, and that the actual experience was bracing and inspiring. After listening to the Buddha's discourses, they were gladdened. When they went away to meditate, they were determined. So it was through the ages when accumulating sorrows and questions drove seekers away from the futility of the passions and toward the inspection of reality, which is the road to liberation. Turning to the ageless Dhamma, they lost their taste for puerile novelty <laughs> and their fear of chaos underneath. The puzzle of life engaged them fully and they were the happier for it. They heard the news worth hearing 
and in the profoundest sense informed themselves. To go sauntering in these woods or anywhere is no real achievement, even if, especially if, we are on the lookout for marvels. A grasping mind is no prettier here than in the roaming city. When we walk, we do not, we do best not to hunt for unusual objects, for seeing trinkets, but just to know whatever comes before us, be it acorns or toadstools or ice in a footprint. If, as the Buddha teaches, all phenomena bear the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, satisfactoriness, and non-self, we ought to be able to relax our preferences. For indeed, inconstant and uncertain as we are, how should we choose our own inspirations? Uh, Nancy, you have a book, don't you? Yes, I, I do. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, so let us go on with mindfulness, ready for the ordinary in a wakeful silence. The leisurely path winds on through the woods until we find it blocked. Here, by a fallen tree, not the first we have stepped over, but one worth noting because, even to our unpracticed eyes, it is obvious it is newly fallen. That living and dead trees blow down does not surprise us. That such wrecks mark the forest as far as we can see is only natural that all life comes to term and passes is a truism. We're not supposed to disagree with all this stuff, are we? Why then do we not throw a leg over this obstacle and be on our way? Perhaps we pause because the fractured trunk, the broken boughs, the crushed shrubs beneath, and the torn up earth together tell us that this event has just happened, maybe within this day or this hour, and that the solid background of our existence has suffered a wound and is no longer what it was. Okay, so is it, after, is it my turn? Maybe I think Matt, so. Matt. Yeah. Matt. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Okay. <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> the tree has been uprooted. Is that the right spot? Yes. Okay, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yielding to wind or disease or the weakness of age, we peer into the crater at its base. We stare at the tangle of broken roots jutting into the air and still gripping great rocks. With rot at its core, the tree might have been already half dead. It had to fall, of course, sometime, but it is. but is it not still shocking that it did so now? Aileen or well, it stood for decades until out of the inscrutable matrix of cause and effect, there came a gust of circumstance to knock it down. Beholding now the cracked bark and the rotted, weakened trunk, we can only nod and acknowledge that it had to be, imagining the awesome seconds when it pitched out of the sky and smashed a throng of saplings. Here surely is news. But where are the reporters and the photographers and the marveling crowds? Is it not an epochal? Epochal. Epochal. Ah, thank you. An epochal change. Should it not stop a thinking, thinking persons to see that even the long life must be destruction at last? That immemorial endurance has a limit. That's something in the cells, in the molecules, 
in the mighty river of natural law overturns everything that has run up. Mountains wash away, suns go out, the long daisy withers in a glass on a table and we likewise ephemeral have not understood. Now the news strikes fresh upon us and we must feel its powerful resonance. Thinking, watching, trying intermittently to interpret, to comprehend, we have lived pressing to the future. Maybe we should turn instead to study the nature of falling trees so we do not get crushed we need them. It just seems he's having a lot of trouble with this, with change. <laughs> like where he says, meet d destruction at last. I would use the word change there. And not because destruction has such a negative connotation to me. Ah. So you want to rewrite this? <laughs> no cameras, no cameras, no reporters on these premises. Only a gray squirrel on the overhanging branch of a nearby tree laconically comments on the devastation, which is ancient and new, routine and stunning, another jolt in the cosmic unrest. The squirrel chucks and clicks with an eye toward us. What obsequies would suit for a fallen tree? What eulogy could, could we pronounce? We do not know. And meanwhile, all other elements of impetuous nature, titanic and minute, race on through the drama of a rising, persisting and passing away, heedlessly hurrying on and on. No time to notify the news people, no time to ponder the past, no time at all that we can catch hold of and clasp to ourselves. And yet, the news has got out. The universal situation has been declared by the Buddha. All formations are impermanent. Who has heard this, really heard it? Who has fitted the thought to experience and felt the current of truth gush through him? Have we, or have we only imagined? Have we crouched in our dim, dim doubts, affrighted and diverted by trifles only all our lives long? A fresh intelligence, always in season, ripens like fruit on every bush, and the Buddha announces it, points it out, and extols its sweetness. But the teaching and the harvesting must be our own great task. So maybe we pause and use, maybe we sit right down on the, tr on the rough trunk of this topple tree and ease back our straining after knowledge. If we attend seriously to the words of the Buddha and if we stay alert to impressions on our senses, watching and noting the repetition of patterns, then we may hope that intuition will awaken us and mature into wisdom. Insight into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, non-self is not accidental. We cannot create it either, but we can make possible its birth by setting up favorable conditions, by training ourselves in mindfulness and bearing down with concentration. Constructive trees will then grow up directly before us. We do not need to chase after unknown truths so much as to restrain our own conduct and widen our view 
to be ready for whatever significant thing that might appear. And significant things are always appearing. Here before us in the cold air, some kind of tiny insect hovers, terribly early for the season, it seems, mysteriously arisen from its icy sleep and drifting away unguessably to death or survival. The newspapers have missed the story, but we must not. Underfoot, the first sprouts are already breaking the forest floor. Who would have suspected it? Who would have suspected his own mind to be a stream of processes as ownerless as the woodland rills? But this is what we find when we subdue our mental commentary for a time and watch what sensations write on the screen of consciousness. We have much in common, it seems, with creeks and trees and clouds. These events are current and invite investigation. Our seat is damp, the day is damp. The body pulls attention to itself, again, shivering, and we have to respond, to get moving, to take up our duties. But if tree or stream or insect has launched an uncommon thought, if our minds sail for a moment on a new, on a new course, Shall we not suppose that a grand quest is indeed possible for us, or has already begun? Let us go on then, mindfully and deliberately. The day is not finished yet, and many truths await our recognition and faith. So down another path and on through the weeds and briars and across a road, we return from the forest to that other forest of society with, let us hope, our habits shoved askew and our minds made ready. And now here we stand once again on warm carpets in the domain of radio, television, and newspapers, where we are ambushed by sight and sound, where information swirls around us like smoke. But we do not, after all, have to be captivated. Impressions on our senses arouse certain kinds of consciousness, but we need not pounce on any of them. We can survey them mindfully, applying ourselves to what is useful, letting pass what is not, listening meanwhile to the deeper communication of the running moment. The furnace clicks in the basement, voices echo and murmur. The cat in the armchair blinks at us and counts off eternity in the flicks of her tail. All formations are impermanent. What then have we been holding on to? Wonderfully, bulletins fall thick upon us like snowflakes on a pond, like rain on oak leaves. The story is illustrated. The news just got out and has reached us. Who have the chance to understand? So it's interesting, Gil Fronsdale says this term that is usually translated as impermanence, anicca, um, he thinks would be better translated as inconstancy because he said what the Buddha was really talking about was things constantly changing. And with impermanence, we tend to think, oh, things go away, right? So, um, so what he was really talking about, in, according to Gil, is the fact that things continually are changing, um, not that everything goes away. Does yeah, that make and, sense? and every moment is totally 
recreated. Yeah, so the, the sense is in impermanence, we think, oh, well, yeah, you know, my dog is impermanent because he's going to die someday. And, you know, this rose is impermanent because it's going to wither someday. And so there's a sense of this uh, sense of loss in it um, and a sense of uh, the ending of things when it's really only talking about this continual change. And birth, because the new moment is reborn from that. that. So with a JPEG, Information is only um, only remembered when there's a change, but this is opposite what we're talking about here. Yeah. Where, where whether or not anything changes, it's in the new moment. It's recreated. Everything is continually changing. Yeah. Even things that that. The change might be that there wasn't a change. Everything is continually changing. Okay. And partly because we're continually changing also, right? Is this cup continually changing? Yes. But it's the scale at which it's changing is not necessarily um, something that's uh, apprehensible to us. And I guess that's the mountain thing that we talk right. about. Yeah. Where we don't yeah. see it. Okay. Yeah. But this last paragraph I thought was was really good. Though I I doubt I don't think it's possible to unless you're uh, Vima Lagerte to experience the news and not get uh, taken in. I think yeah. it's like brainwashing. That, yeah. You know I mean maybe there's someone on Earth who could do it, but. Well, we're very susceptible because for a number of reasons biologically we're programmed to scan the horizon and scan our existence and see what, um, what we need to know, right? So what we need to know to survive or what we need to know to chase the buffalo or whatever, you know? So we're hardwired to do that scanning. We're also, and, for, and as a result of that, we're hardwired to, to um, gravitate towards, our attention gravitates towards any moving image. So that's a, sort of legacy of our hunter-gatherer early existence is that we're completely captivated when there's movement. So well, his idea was you can control yourself enough to not get aggravated. You can control yourself enough not to get reactive. Yeah. So you're, ha you're having all this uh, appearance and you recognize, oh, it's an appearance. It's a certain manifestation. I guess reminding yourself of that. Okay. Well, isn't that isn't that uh, like one of the? It's one of the results of awareness, or one of the goals of awareness. The moment of clarity, when you like what you were saying, Kim, you, you that moment that you recognize that you're being taken in by the news, there is a split moment of awareness. Isn't that? The purpose or the goal or the idea of awareness? Yeah, I think to be aware that um, that that's what's happening, that you're that you're caught. Um, you always, when you're watching the news, have to remember what the news is selecting for. So what that medium is selecting for is what's sensational, what's um, you know what's going to make a graphic image that will grab people's attention, and that um, and that will keep people glued to the screen. And so it's always a sensational and it's always 
a very tiny, tiny, tiny limited fraction of what's happening at any given moment, right? So, uh, but we get galvanized by it like it's the whole thing, like it's everything. Um, instead of recognizing this is a, you know, a representation that has been very carefully chosen to be as um, attention grabbing as, as it can possibly be. And so, and they, you know, in tracking, they have figured out what it is that grabs our attention and what it is that, um, that compels us to stay tuned, right? Yeah, so I, I keep coming back to the brilliance of Odysseus knowing that he couldn't withstand the sirens. Yeah, tying so, up to the mast. I mean, that's a reason not to watch the stuff rather than trying to watch it and not get taken in. Well, I think you, I think you have to be um, a skillful consumer and you have to understand what the, um, what's being projected. So, um, and you may find that a different medium is better. So, uh, for example, you might say, well, actually, it's better for me to get the news in print media because... Which is what that thing that you sent out said, yeah. rather than TV. Right. Um, as a way of um, damping down the kind of um, uh, sensational quality of the moving image and sound and all of that. So, so, it, so we have to decide for ourselves, how are we going to consume news and what do we think news actually is? Right, what do, we, what do we think it is? So, and that's why on the correspondent website, they don't do news, they do in-depth stories. And those in-depth stories are about a larger picture changes and things that are going on that are way more important than the momentary events that are getting captured in the news. Well, New Yorker does that too. Yeah, New Yorker does that, The Atlantic is good at that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but Daily News, they've got content. They've got to, they have a container they've got to fill with sensational content that's going to grab readers. Is it a new recipe for um, banana bread or is it, you know, what is it going to be? Is it the marches in London or, you know, what is it, you know, what's going to, what's going to grab attention? So, I mean, there's a lot that's been written about this as the attention economy. Yeah. And, and it seems like it seems also like that um, to the to the extent that we know that we each individually know what's arising in us when we see that that particular um, yeah uh, news or you know the, the the thing that we're seeing the the sense this whatever it is that the sense is seeing or hearing or taking in to the extent we know how that impacts our own uh, arising of, yeah. of that. Our responses. Our well, response to that. Yeah. That's why you, you need to be a wise consumer, you know, um, uh, and that's why the advice is, uh, you know, look at the news maybe two or three times at the most in the daytime and not too close to bedtime um, and decide how much time you're going to allocate to that. So. 20 minutes so you can catch up with everything that's in sort of national news. Um, and there aren't that many developments that happen over a single day, right? So it's, it's, it's rare that what's happening is going to be so new a couple hours later um, that, so we have to make those decisions and we have to make wise decisions. You know, we have to be wise about it. 
Like there are things I won't look at because you can't get images out of your head once they're in your head, right? So I don't go to horror movies because you can't get those images out of your head once they're there. So my son used to go to horror movies. He had a completely different take on them because he was studying visual effects and how um, special effects are made in film. And so he, he looked at them in a completely different way. They weren't disturbing to him because he was seeing. So that's how you make the blood look like it's gushing. <laughs> wow, that sounds cool. <laughs> you have corn syrup with dye in it and, and it's, uh, yeah, okay, so then there's a pump and, you know, like, I was interested in sort of the technical side of it. <laughs> but I made him go alone, you know, I'm not going. <laughs> I, and I, I I like what you said about impermanence first versus uh, in what, what was it inconstancy. Yeah, yeah. Because I I have had that feeling of imper their impermanence does have a certain uh, negative quality yeah. at least for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, you can say well, um, things are impermanent in the sense that new things come into your life too. You know, but. Uh, but it's really, I think this, this sense of inconstancy really captures it a little bit better. Constancy. Yeah. Yeah, because in, in the way the Buddha actually described it, that's what he was talking about, the change of things and the flow of that change. Right. Yeah. So the change in, you know, a tree is over a much longer time scale than the change in a, you know, dragonfly. But, you know, the change is there nevertheless. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Death and chrysanthemum. Chrysanthemums. <laughs> chrysanthemums. The visitor to a Buddhist temple will likely find flowers in the shrine room. People bring them to beautify the place to honor the Buddha and perhaps to demonstrate something in their hearts that cannot well be said in words. Sometimes these are cut flowers which sweeten the air of the shrine for a while, and sometimes they are blooming, potted plants with foliage and flowers which last a little longer until lack of light or just the cycles of nature cause them to fade and wilt. Then they get carried outside to be discarded or perhaps to be planted whole somewhere in the garden or to be taken away if somebody wants them. The rotation continues so that some freshness and color might always grace the temple. Once the flowers have passed their peak and have been removed, no one gives them any thought, or it may be none but those really keen on making an end of suffering. May we invite you neighbor out here to the backyard to inspect some dying flowers? Do you please, do you need other duties, other places to go? In our clinic journeys, we are ongoing to this contemplation eventually. Let us learn the territory. These plants are chrysanthemums. You can see quite finished as to beauty, dying but fast, fast now, irre irreversibly decaying the usual way. After a few days of loveliness, the yellow flowers show a brown stem, then a swift curling and drooping while the lips shrink as from an invisible fire. What fire, we might say? The fire of impermanence ardently eating up the marrow of the world. 
is models here in these solid stocks, in these collapsing blooms, and even this certainly now that we look, even in the hands we extend to turn the pot on these marks and scars and blemishes, testimonies of years and words gone by. When we gaze long on chrysanthemum or any dear and lovely thing, we do not feel sometimes even in our, even in our pleasure. The obscure anxiety, the foreshadowing of their passing. But it is not curious how we cannot, but it is not curious how we cannot explain what exactly is beauty and what exactly is the peak or prime of any object we admire. Flower is a word pasted over just one phase of, of a process that we find most pleasing. Out of the crowd of conditions of soil, water, sun, and seed, the clenched bud rises, slowly widening a yellow eye, then unfurling petals, the young bloom, the broader flower, then the stain creeping into the yellow, the shriveling and steady desolation. No period in the cycle is possibly without the others. Conditions follow one another in continue, as continuously as water flowing. These potted flowers, given the inscrutable ways of chrysanthemums, may die back to the dirt, but for a stalk or two, perhaps to put forth new shoots in time, perhaps not. In their present state, they're repulsive which is why they get banished to the backyard and why we banish them and their symbolism from our minds as well, wishing to dwell always with the pleasant. But such a dwelling is, as we nevertheless know, quite unattainable to the longing for permanence, so the longing for permanence and the fact of death saw back and forth painfully in our minds. Come now, neighbor, crouch down here and admire these derelict flowers. Color changes, texture changes, shape changes, and have ever done so. We would stop the decay if we could, but we cannot. And even if we could, we know it would be folly. Imagine these flowers daubed with varnish, stiff as wires, lit with spotlights and soaked with perfume. A poor imposture that could not please us much. We would know that vitality had fled. No, there is no hope for it, no help for it. What we care for changes and vanishes even as we cling, and in the clinging there is grief. Now it may be that we have, now it may be that we have just attended or will soon attend, so certain is nature, the funeral of someone we loved a ritual with flowers in abundance as if to drive back sorrow with masked loveliness. That dear and irreplaceable person is gone and pain diffuses through the void in our hearts. Always in our grief, in our fear of grief, we want some counterpoise to death, some protest or denial of its finality. This is natural and customary and human, but it is also unavailing. Might there be another way to tranquility? Have we ever stepped past the casket to meditate 
on the arrayed flowers in their own swift, silent passage to age and dissolution. All things from the ocean foam to galaxies preach Dhamma when the mind grows still and listens. Seed, root, stalk, and flower, on they roll, and on rolls the whole wheel of conditioned existence, ensuring pleasure and pain, elation and sorrow, as long as the constituent elements stay glued together. And with what glue but clinging? There cannot be birth without death or death without birth while we cling. There cannot be these lilies incarnations without the wilting of lilies incarnations. We cling to the faces of brightness and get pulled into the darkness again and again. But if this is so, as we can hardly doubt, should we then subsist without flowers or love in a moribund universe, forever grimly intent on decay? A better cure for grief. But such is not the way of the Buddha. Rather, this death or any death should motivate us to contemplate and to come to terms with the wheel of samsara and then to transcend it. All compounded things have the characteristic of arising and ceasing, not only people and flowers. So distressing is this fact, or rather the, the suspicion of this fact, that we comprehend it in experience, that the frightened mind retreats to delusion, delusions of permanence, security, and well-being, much as a passenger in an airplane might pull down his window shade and pretend he is sitting perfectly still in a motionless room. But this is only a temporary, unsustainable fiction. In our own lives, doubt, full, apprehensive, wearied with amusements, we cannot go on forever believing in security and permanence. The walls of not seeing, not looking, not believing, crack and fall to shocks, calamities, and the slow crush of time. Then pain pours in, made worse, by the seeming pointlessness of it all. Oh, looks like Matt left, right? Oh, we lost Matt, yeah. Oh, okay. The Buddhist solution to the problem is to break down the walls of illusion before the great trials strike, or even to use the trials as a tool to bright open the locks of fear. In Buddhism, we find no false comfort, no tiptoeing around the unpleasantness of death. In the, in the absence of wisdom, death is indeed a bad thing, not a sweet and certain transition to eternal heaven. It is a bad thing because it interrupts our efforts for emancipation and sends us spinning off to a non-rebirth or sends our mind spinning off in sorrow when the death is our friends. Death is a hard fact, an inescapable fact, and we have to consider it and know it for what it is. But do we not already know what death is? Sadly, we do not. We think of it as a singular catastrophe that erases individual beings. Thus we dread it for years and weep when it strikes our loved ones, putting what looks like a total end to the existing person. 
Out of natural reflex, we misapprehend both death and the one to whom it happens. But a, systemic, but a systematic analysis of compounded things into their parts and conditions will lead to a different view. Death, we come to realize, is a word fastened more or less haphazardly on experience without understanding of the whole underlying process, which is, at its simplest, just a relentless rising and falling of events, a coming into existence and a going out of existence, a perpetual flux. Human beings, dolphins, rocks, and trees suffer alike this elemental impermanence or instability with their complex or primitive components coming into being, staying a while, then ceasing, passing away, making way for something else. If we are alert to changes, we will be surprised to see that changes are happening all the time. Countless drops that make up the flood of conditioned existence. If we are not alert, however, and if we have no knowledge of the Dhamma, we are apt to fill, fall into one of our of two extreme views, very common in the world. On the one hand, there is eternalism, the belief that this very present self, that this very person self or apparent ego will last, will continue, will be identifiably preserved after death in some form or other. On the other hand, there's annihilationism, the belief that an existing person will be annihilated, destroyed at death, that with the destruction of the body, a man or a woman is simply obliterated and is no more. Buddhism avoids both these wrong extremes by focusing on the essential process of existence, which is in the uh, interaction of selfless conditions. Life is a conditioned pattern, not a graspable thing. It is beginninglessly and endlessly renewed by ignorant craving, giving only the appearance to the unenlightened eyes of absolute selves traveling through time. Death as we usually understand it or misunderstand it is inseparable from the concept of somebody or some entity who undergoes death. The Buddhism teaches that what we call a person is a combination of five impermanent conditioned aggregates or groups, material form or body, pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feeling, perception, mental formations or activities and consciousness. These aggregates act act together in intricate combination to give the appearance of an enduring personality or ego that this person, while solid enough in the limited ordinary sense, is not solid in the ultimate sense. Here we have another concept stretched over usually misunderstood natural phenomena. The Buddha explains, suppose monks, a large lump of froth was floating on this river Ganges and a clear-sighted man were to see it, observe it, and properly examine it. Seeing it, observing it, properly examining it, it would appear to him to be empty. 
unsubstantial, without essence. What essence, monks, could there be in a lump of froth? In the same way, monks, whatsoever body, feeling, perception, mental activities, consciousness, past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or, or superior, far or near, that a monk sees, observes, and properly examines, it would appear to him to be empty, insubstantial, without essence. What essence, monks, could there be in body, in feeling, in perception, in mental activities, in consciousness? And that's from the Samyutta Nikaya. Any aspect of the mind and body complex, when shrewdly investigated, reveals itself to be merely a perishable part, not an essence. When we can find nowhere a center or core, but only transient interdependent parts, we are obliged to consider that what we witness and experience and attach a name to is a profoundly unsubstantial flux of causality, events springing from causes and giving rise to further events. This is not to say that everything is imaginary or that we do not exist, Rather, that we do not exist in the way we think we do, but at the dynamic, ever-changing result of innumerable conditions. Such an understanding of the made-up, comprehended, oops, compounded individual must, therefore, alter our view of death of the individual. What sort of end can this be? From the highly personal destruction of a self, we come down to the dispersal of Essence, essence, essenceless factors, where there is no firm ground, only floating bubbles. Where shall we fling ourselves down? How shall we begin our morning? Death in the elemental sense of falling after rising is going on all the time, all throughout any given life. So the physical death of the body should be seen as one more change in the ancient process. We might say with some logic that death is thus a normal state of affairs and offers little reason for clinging and grieving. Still, of course, we do grieve, and rare is the bereaved person who is consoled by logic alone. The beauty of Buddhist teachings, however, the, the beauty of Buddhist teaching, however, is that it grows from the ground of reason, preparing the mind and dispelling false notions and blossoms into the fragrant, liberating experience of the truth. How? As we have suggested, by widening our view until we can appreciate more than one thin segment of reality. When the follower of Dhamma has come to see with immediate and tremendous clarity that there is in fact nothing of substance in this foam of change, internally or externally, that can be clung to, then the question of trying to cling simply can no longer come up. With the sensation of ignorance, there comes the sensation of craving for the impossible. And with the sensation of craving, becomes a blessed sensation of suffering. With no more fire, the overwrought heart cools. You're on mute, Kim. Okay. If we gradually train our minds to see what the Buddha teaches, and what in fact all of nature shows, then we can approach that cessation, that glorious liberation. 
Not only have we long misunderstood the nature of ourselves and others, but with our narrow view, we have lamented death as an end. Yet the five aggregates that make up the person cannot strictly be said to end at death and to begin at birth because they themselves have never been subsisting, enduring entities at all, only groups <coughs> or streams of conditioned events that continually arise and break up and arise again. When the body dies, the material basis on which the living process depends is lost. This is the heart sutra, isn't it? Wow. But as long as the current of energy lasts, as long as ignorance and craving keep churning, there can be no finality or rest. The cooperative process of the aggregates continues. Out of the momentum of built-up comma, rebirth takes place in an appropriate new organism in this world or another. No self expires, no self passes on. One life causes and conditions its successor, much as the vibration in one section of a wire fence jumps into the next section, perpetuating a visible pattern. Ordinarily, we say correctly that a person dies and takes rebirth elsewhere according to his or her, <coughs> her deeds. But in stricter philosophical terms, we can say that no one dies and no one is born. Phenomena just repeatedly arise out of conditions. I wonder if he wrote this part much later than the last part. I mean, it seems like he's figured out a lot between the two. <laughs> there is consolation here. We take the time to let emotions settle. When loved ones die, we should remember that this is not the absolute end of them, as it appears to our earthbound eyes, but that until such time as they attain full enlightenment, they are set for rebirth, for new life, whose quality will be determined by the quality of their own deeds. A good person, one who has acted virtuously, has a happy destiny ahead, a fortunate result of Kama in one or another of the many planes of existence. Moreover, this person was never as limited and defined as we thought. Our suffering now is the result of the ignorance and desire with which we looked at him or her. If we release this person from the frame, framework of literal concepts, we release ourselves as well from a painful prison. How could we hold in place that which is ever moving? How could we embrace forever five spinning empty aggregates? Such a sorrowful error. How much better simply to love and let go. Now, neighbor, would you not agree that these wasted Christian moments are not so ugly as we thought at first? Are they not instructive, right, Dhamma? Even as they bend here insensately toward the earth, there is no cause for disgust, no need to hurry to the store for a fresh pot. There are some green leaves remaining, sprung, sprung from the same roots, even if they were not. The future of chrysanthemums is not depleted. Somehow the seed get around, somehow the karma of sentient beings get around too. 
uncountable in its risings, ramifying prodigiously through time. And here we arrive at the crux of the problem. When we fear annihilation of our own or something else or someone else's self, we might take some reassurance from the Buddhist vision of repeated birth, which offers always a new chance, a new opportunity for wonder, wandering beings. But this is still a low plateau for novices only. Undependable on further inspection, we have to take another breath and resume the climb. The Buddha saw the fact of rebirth as another aspect of unsatisfactoriness. The sorrows of existence are not unique events. They go on happening again and again from limitless past to inconceivable future. If we adjust to this present decease, no matter more, more are coming. And as long as we have not penetrated into an understanding of the selflessness of the aggregates, as long as we have not extinguished the defilements in our hearts and attained true security, more pains must come as well. In the cycle of samsara, in the conditioned succession of rebirths, good and virtuous beings certainly enjoy the happy results of their accumulated good deeds, finding havens of great peace and serenity. But even in the sublime heavenly planes, we are told, life eventually reaches a limit, breaks down, comes to an end, and the unenlightened inhabitants of those lovely realms are necessarily scattered again like vagabonds with no inheritance or refuge but their own deeds. What should this suggest to a courageous thinker who is aware of his weaknesses, but aware also of his precious momentary glimpse of the Dhamma? the Buddha draws a challenging picture. Inconceivable is the beginning of this samsara. Not to be discovered is a first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths. Long have you suffered the death of father and mother, of sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. And whilst you are thus suffering, you have indeed shed more tears upon this long way than there is water in the four great oceans. And thus, O monks, have you long undergone suffering, undergone torment, undergone misfortune, and filled the graveyards full, verily, long enough to be dissatisfied with all forms of existence, long enough to turn away and free yourselves from them all. Such is the unflinching vision of the Buddha who urges us home to Nibbana, to liberation from the whole uproar of birth and death. We might forget death for a time, but we cannot evade the thought or the fact forever. Small respites will serve us only temporarily, only long enough for us to catch our breath, to get our feet under us once again. Behind us lie the tearful wastes we have journeyed in so long. Now we must make a new journey beyond them entirely. We cannot escape suffering merely by dying because rebirth follows, produced by our craving. This present life with all its troubles offers a wonderful opportunity for doing good work, achieving nobility of mind and eliminating craving. 
into this sphere of baffling contradictions, the human being who was to become the Buddha was born. And here he realized supreme enlightenment. And here he announced the way to Nibbana, teaching the incomparable Dhamma to relieve the sorrow of living beings. Here also is where we must practice, bravely bearing misfortunes, refraining from bad deeds, doing good deeds, striving to cleanse our hearts from bad deeds. Excuse me, cleanse. Oh, I just totally lost my place. Conscious, conscientiously building our own character. Um, striving to cleanse our hearts, Kama. I'll just jump to, here also is where we must practice. Bravely bearing misfortunes, refraining from bad deeds, doing good deeds, striving to cleanse our hearts, conscientiously building our own characters. If we apply ourselves to such tasks, working patiently, we will find our days wisely spent and our whole lives beautified with earned blessings. The Buddha said that just as the ocean has only one taste, the taste of salt, so his teaching has only one taste, the taste of liberation. We neighbors squatting here in the warm sun, musing over chrysanthemums, do we begin to taste the Dharma, a flavor, not tears and burning grief, but of something utterly fine and sweet and pure? It should move us to search for more goodness, to abandon more folly, to learn what should be learned. By many similes, the Buddha emphasized the precariousness and brevity of our worldly career and the dukkha within it. The diligent who have devoted themselves to virtuous deeds and mental development go on inspired to greater happiness, while the indolent wander <coughs> woefully out of this life as ignorant as they came into it. <laughs> Dreamers squander their advantages, their chances of making progress by thinking lazily, lazily, lazily? Uh -huh. Oh, there is time, there is time. Time there will be, time there will surely be in one world or another, but opportunity to learn there might not be. The days and nights are flying past Life dwindles hurriedly away. The life of mortals vanishes like waters in a tiny stream. Samyutta Nikaya 410. This is still part. We'll go on. What were you going to say, Kim? No, it's still part of the paragraph, but go on. I think what we've, um, what we've been doing is reading the next person reads after that. Yeah, that's fine. Here is an opportunity in reach of our senses, right in these disintegrating chrysanthemums. For even in these withered petals, the Four Noble Truths themselves stand out, speaking here in the dialect of flowers. The truth of suffering is the loss, weakness, and wrongness inherent in conditioned things the inability to keep off change and preserve what is dear. These yellow blossoms lose their strength. Their beauty runs out. Helplessly, they decay. 
We cannot protect them. After a few days, we sigh with regret. But what is the truth of the origin of our small suffering, our tiny disappointment here? It is only the old spur of craving, the urge to control the uncontrollable. Like the faces of our beloved relatives and friends, these chrysanthemums must change and fall away. So we must turn for help to the truth of the cessation of suffering. If the craving itself can be demolished, then the whole dependent mass of suffering, the round of pain, will come to an end. With no more futile lunging after this or that, the mind will come to balance in freedom, liberation, peace, nirvana. The truth of the way to this cessation of suffering is, as always, the noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. In the midst of birth and death, this path teaches grace and calm when thinking, speaking, acting, when bearing away exhausted flowers. We have sorrowed long enough and we have died long enough. The Dhamma is standing beyond telling from to the hood, tonic to the great, uh, to the brave, lamb to the questing, look up to the traveling sun if you will neighbor. The bright you come the bright hour comes round. The noon of our our strength is now. Stretch yourself as you will. What is left to say? Sermons are falling from the very air. New, numberless as flower petals. Mm -hmm. uh, 18 emblems of the Dhamma. Somewhere far from here, a hundred little streams drop out of the hills and find each other in the valleys, called a river then, and given a name. This community of water meanders on to our city widening, deepening, evolving, gathering into itself leaves, pollen, soil, seeds, rolling slow or fast with the shape of the land, blazed by sun and, punctu and punctured by rain, drawn on to the nameless, namelessness of the ocean, a long blue and green metaphor where we sail our boats and our thoughts and by whose shore our ancestors have stood and where our children too will stand, gazing and wondering. Around here, the river slips and spills through a mile or two of rapids and shallows before passing smoothly by the city. These turbulent reaches with their backwaters are the result of fishermen, fakers, and, or so it is to be hoped, philosophers, because the river speaks Dhamma to those who approach with their hearts prepared. We can find solitude of a sort and a place for listening here in this strip of frequently <laughs> that lies still uninviting and unbeautiful under the glaring sun. Flat, broken, and swampy, too low to be built upon, at least by the builders of physical structures, it yet puzzles and intrigues by its very wildness. Let us go then. Let us cross it. Though the ground is rough and tangled for casual strollers, a band of blue water sparkles attractively in the distance. If we must have a nameable destination for our walk, that will do. Over there against the steep far bank, the river surges its channel most of the year. 
So with the spring rains, it engulfs the bottom land, tearing away the old debris and depositing the new. In the ravaged sycamores that survive here, we can see above our heads, wads of dead leaves and streamers of cloth or plastic, telling how high the last flood swelled. Wobbling on the stones and stranded, wobbling on the stones and stranded driftwood, we look up, being used, imagining walking beneath that torrent. Again and again, the flood has come, remaking the boulder field, and still some wretched, leaning trees live on. Bushes flourish between the stones, and pools ripple with small life. We cannot help but notice a dumb persistence in nature arising and falling that causes us to wonder if we ourselves are persisting towards some good end or only rising and falling, drowning and reviving by turns. The hike through this untidy bit of wilderness to the river's edge is not easy in the labyrinth of dense grass and boulders. But when with sore ankles, we stumble down to rest by the spray at last, we feel our hearts bravely beating and know we have begun to earn the first fruit of contemplation. Though jet airplanes thunder overhead now, and then cars glitter on a distant bridge, we have solitude enough and the wide earth opens to our view. The scene is not entirely charming, though it has a grandeur we might profitably explore. Down here away from the city, the winds rock to and fro. The river plunges and hisses. Green hills fade away into a vacant sky. It is summer now, and the boulders burn against our skin as we sit and blink in the harsh glare of the high sun. Time hardly matters here, where centuries roll by like birds lazily gliding at the zenith. Winter or stormy autumn would be no prettier, surely, with icy water mindlessly driving on. In all seasons there is mud and washed up refuse. But as philosophers, we should not extend ourselves beyond, but as philosophers, should we not extend ourselves beyond mere appearances? If so, we must make our inchoate longings for understanding condensed to attentiveness and observation. By exerting ourselves, we can see what there is to see. The, was that you, Glenn? It was. Uh, too often, we suck up experience like a drug and swish it in our minds to savor its pleasure. The superficial lover of nature is simply out, is out simply to please himself. And though that is not necessarily bad, neither is it praiseworthy or productive. One thing every student of Dhamma should come to realize is that the pleasures of the senses fail quickly and give no real sustenance. So when we, so when we behold the spectacle of the charging river, let us not be slack, but instead meditate upon these mingled elements of light, foam, sound, smell, rock, and water. If they are beautiful to us, that is no great matter. What do they signify? And beyond significance, what are they in themselves? If we stay a while listening to the multitudinous speech of the water, we are apt to be teased out of ourselves and swung here and there in the play of nature, mesmerized by the green current, lulled by the windy spaces around us. But let us not be too docile. What is really going on here? What mood dominates? Surely we must feel the immense age of this earth, its endless, weary metamorphosis. 
The boulders we perch our ephemeral bodies on are remnants of ancient plains and mountains. The river, frisking with deceptive youth, has been wearing at the layered rock past human memory, finding its way down through the bluffs to its present level. There is an epic sameness and soberness in the history written in stone. What remains of any worldly works? The earth itself is here being transformed, cracking and falling, undercut by a slippery nothing of water. The summer's curling vine explores the face of the eroding cliff. Tiny creatures twitch in the rain pockets and rock, and everything goes on changing under the changing sky. So the emblem of impermanence rises to our minds, and we are forced to contemplate our own vulnerable skin and fluttering breath. With the roots of mountains washing away before us, how preposterous is our shrill vanity, and how much a glimpse of Dhamma shakes us. We live scampering between floods. Surely we cannot afford to build with straws anymore. The river is now blue, now green, now white in the rapids. Supple and shifting, it dazzles, it dazzles us. We might call it beautiful. Faced with all this change, this unrest, we grow tired even of beauty and long to find an ultimate serenity beyond all commotion. Shall we walk on? Doubt here beneath the notice of the great world, we make our way, our small way, through the landscape of emblems, the bushes and grass and weeds that survive here, pinched between the rocks in park to a green haze to the floor, to the flood plain, or in the winter, a, a tawny blur. Birds and butterflies are born from cocoons in the, in the trees. Things condition one another and make up the shimmering world we perceive in any moment. At our approach, Frightened ducks in the swamps and backwater boat into the air, excited, excitedly gabbling and wheel in huge circles overhead, then drop and settle again nearby, as if in search of safer quarters, in, but unable to break the habit that holds them to their uncertain sexually, crowds and goes to flap and guide and crowd cry out their untranslatable desires while far above they just grumble. Well, we cannot stare mindlessly because walking requires care and balance. Up and down stone slabs and through impending grass and mud and around pools of water. In hiking along beginning to perspire, we find that the day has a rough sufficiency that is fairly pleasant to think about. Might this be enough to live on? Though we are mortal creatures, could we just forget our problems by identifying ourselves somehow with this austere wasteland, this great and seemingly immortal river, this bird-decorated sky? Further along the bank, we pass a few silent fishermen with rods and nets. We pause, squinting in the sun as a fish is, is landed, flapping and twisting. The fisherman seizes it, Patently pries the hook out of the, out of the throat, dumps the catch into a bucket. Was that a streak of blood we saw? Onward a little further, we are startled by the stench of something dead. 
fish guts on the rocks. No, no need to look too closely. A glance over there is enough. We decide, moving away hastily, thinking better of identifying ourselves with river valleys or anything. But already scales and flesh and a cloud of flies make up an emblem of unsatisfactoriness, even while the river frolics and the sweet blue sky floats overhead. Life catches us with bewildering contradictions. Joys are bitten by frost and griefs are softened by springtime. This plane of existence shows that such an ambivalent character that a human being is driven to surrender to confusion or melancholy or less commonly to pursue a pilgrimage to awakening. And how brave are we today? How intent on awakening? Are we tired of dreaming? Can we contemplate what swings right before us now? We blink until the too bright scene becomes clear. Here is something hideous, out of place, suspended from a sapling. It jolts our senses for a second before we can in interpret it. A small fish, dead, some six inches long, dried to a nasty figure of decay, dangling from a length of transparent line. Who put it here? It sways and turns, grossly dead, mummified and disgusting, with an eye or the shrunken pit of an eye, staring out with infinite bleakness at us and all things. The harmony of the valley dies in that awful eye, and at once we turn away our own eyes and look around for something green and gentle. But in doing so, do we not betray ourselves? Or must not the real philosopher, the seeker, confront all forms that appear, not just the beautiful? So let us meet with a ready mind this emblem of Dhamma that has shocked us. It signifies death, of course, the rude breakup of vitality and gladness. It warns that time is short for living beings. It mocks us with its swimming in air, suggesting the empty flurry of our busyness. So much for symbolism. Here the recreational philosopher might break off his pondering but the follower of Dhamma must go on. Things present aspects of beauty or ugliness to us that we can and should read, but these are only outward spore of truth, which the wise have declared to dwell right here in our own minds and bodies. The fish offends and troubles us with its message of decay, but the anxiety is our own, made out of our fear and ignorance. We might take a lesson of death, but not gladly. We might take it as a hint to hurry even more, to accomplish things, to experience more of what is considered pleasurable, but we are not the happier for it. This empty knot of aggregates we call I writhes with passion and prejudice, and it seems so hard ever to be free of them. Indeed, we are afraid to be free of them, yet, the little fish here irresistibly pulling our gaze is more than an emblem. It is a fact as the boulders and the grass are facts. It is about, it is a shout of reality. It is a vessel of knowledge. If we stand eye to eye with it unreconciling and let our thought bore in, what do we see? What does contemplation discover? Beneath the grotesque form, there is just the dried remainder of skin and flesh. Beneath them, a tiny tree of bone. There are shape and consistency that somehow make a fish a fish, 
and what beneath? Only finer and finer webs and bits of mysterious matter, gossamer patterns, sparks of being in endless change. In silence, the imagination sails into space, elements, gulfs between the stars. Where has death gone to? Where has ugliness gone to? If we raise our own hand, our beloved and familiar hand, we discern the lines, pores, blemishes, crevices, and canyons of a strange and boundless country. Where does it end and where does our mortal beauty go? All earthly experience is made of changing formations. The anxious circling ducks, the lifeless fish, lifeless fish, the flowering weeds, our own flesh and dreams. They resolve to echoing space, emptiness, immeasurable oceans, and strange to tell, no one hides inside. Within the solid, within the terrifying or the lovely, there is found only the slow swelling bell of non-self heard only by, only by the contemplator. With a mind alert and still, we can know the world without liking or disliking, without distraction. If we faintly perceive even in a dangling fish the marks of existence, we can begin to shed our own accomplished, accustomed suffering because suffering depends on the craving and clinging, on the myth that there is something that we can be clung to. When the myth dissolves, what shall remain to torment us? Truly, our lives are temporary. <laughs> constructions limited and conditioned by the laws of change and yet the more we realize that this the nearer we approach liberation pain arises from longing for a worldly permanence that does not exist and if we experience this truth we can begin to let go diminish pain and open the dimension of the timeless To be secure is not to command talent, wealth, adoration, or power, but to be attuned to the state of the universe as it is. All things in this river valley and in the world beyond run on in their cycles without rest, ever rolling. Yet there is a freedom possible, and this is what should engage our minds in this vital flicker of eternity. Our bones will build the cliffs of the future, and we will be reborn high or low again, what will that avail us if we become no wiser or better? Shall we not aim for wisdom and earn emancipation? The rest is floatsome and in, and in the endless stream. The dry little fish turns on its light on the wind, in the wind, and its eyes whips over us and on formations. Mighter now, it seems, time to move on them, wherever we will. So let us go. Now that our breath flows free again, now that the wind has come up in the in the uh, in the scaggly trees, let us go on in today's adventure, high stepping through the deep grass and skirting the swamps and clambering over driftwood, while above us the chest the chest strength to a heaven. Now we strut and hoop and. Uh, trip and recover, making our way in the direction we have chosen. And now we balance on a spin of rock, looking to the blue zen, and for a moment hold the body in equilibrium. But have we yet set our minds in equilibrium? 
said the on the the even way. We are walking, but have we got beyond yesterday ignorance? Now, as if we followed the arc of a stone thrown high in the sun-flooded air, we let our gaze fall from sky and trees down to the earth before us. Here, here in this random day in eternity, here in the soft ground between the rocks we see, of all strange signs and symbols, the unmistakable hoofprint of a deer and further along a cluster of others among cans and bottles and scraps of plastic. Here in the rank mud of this suburban valley, amazingly, a few deer survive in the poor thickets of a riverbank in Boulderfield. In this not, is this not testimony to the in, inexhaustible spring of life and will? Might we not drink at those springs and fortify our hearts to attempt what we only timidly dream of? Surely more revelations await us. Struck sharp and deep in the changeable mud, momentarily present for our momentary vision, a single hoof print, a letter from the universal alphabet illustrates the Dharma, that which, that which is to be seen by the focused mind. And now the scent of the earth rises around us like an incense. And now if we have ears for it in the jets are making a brave thunder and the river is chanting pure doctrine. And above in the leaning trees, the plastic shreds are blowing and exulting like flags. Can it be after all that we live in a holy country? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, non-self. First, we read the message in characters of ink or stone or earth, and then we see through them, know through them, toward the radiant reality beyond all places. There is no need to run after the marvelous, the plain seen at any moment being fruitful enough when we walk the good path of Dhamma through city or country. We should not despise the light on chrome or the rust trailing down from a nail on a wall any more than a budding wildflower. Truth shows through all faces of nature. To perceive what is needful, we have nothing but these frail senses, but they are sufficient if we direct them wisely. Then we have reason for faith. The river will flow on. The deer may live and prosper, and the ducks may fly out of the valley at last. So I have a question about um, whether we want to have a, another meeting of just sort of reflecting about this book, or if we, um, if we want to do that for, uh, for the last sort of five minutes of what we have now, if there's anything that people particularly wanted to say about it. I vote on now. Okay. What, did, what does everybody else think? I agree now. Yeah, okay. sounds good. Yeah, mm -hmm. that means in two weeks we'll start the new book. Yeah. Okay. So, so what are we doing next week? Um, well, the intensive will be next week, so we won't be meeting. Oh, nice. The intensive will be happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what's your impression?
for me, I think the very um, almost like close to the end when he mentioned that uh, about that, like some people, I mean, like it's remind me of the pandemic right now. Like when um, people are so um, threatened about it, someone just like try to wrap to the craving as much as possible as like travel to other places that they have not but like try to eat other food that they have not something like that while other group try to like practice be calm and like meditate or something yeah 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 he's very he's very poetic in trying to um bring our attention to the way the Dharma manifests in nature. It's, it's, his language is very poetic. Yeah, it was almost, it was almost yeah. difficult to read. Uh, it was, people were, we were all kind of stumbling over just how just the huge amount of words he uses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very unusual when you uh, compare it to sort of the pared down typical Zen writing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's much more elaborated. Or so, even, even compared to, you know, Theravadan writing. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of in a class by itself, I think. Yeah, exactly. It's closer to some of the Mahayana texts that are, you know, more sort of um, full blown, but it's it's more grounded in nature than those texts tend to be. What was interesting to me was the poetry that he uses um, in particular, you know, about nature, and then, and then um, kind of translating that in my own mind to, to the lessons, to the Dharma, Dharma lessons. Yeah. Uh, that was really interesting. So, sometimes it worked, and other times it was like, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not making this connection. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like when, he, like when he, the, the towards the end again, because that's fresh on my mind, when he was talking about the, the fish, the dead fish, uh -huh. um, and relating it to, to death and, and how, how that relates to the impermanence, I thought, wow, that, I can see that. I see that happening. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of those lessons are very easy to apprehend and others are, it's a stretch, you know? Right. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book. Yeah, it's, it's unusual. But I, I really liked it's, um, the way it was immersed in nature and the descriptions of the natural world that he provides are so rich. Sometimes it was a little hard for me to tell whether the voice was his or the voice was the like the uninformed worldling. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it became clearer at the end, but he kept going back and forth between, yeah. uh, you know, what, who is he? What does he really believe? I couldn't. Yeah. Sometimes that can be a little, little uh, confusing. Yeah.
I, um, I appreciated the way he was using that heavy, dense prose to slow us down. Like yeah. that, it was almost as if the style was the message. It was almost as if the style was the content. Yeah. You said he was a poet at our first meeting. And that, uh, yeah. The, so so I, love, I love the fact that, that his style and his content, his style and his message were almost the same. And that's forcing us to slow down, which yeah. is what we need to do. And to look more closely. And look here. Things that we rushed by yeah. most of the time. Yeah, that's a great point. Which you can also see in the in the detail of of, of the writing, the the, um, the adjectives he uses constantly. Yeah, the thundering jets overhead. You know, like yeah, yeah. I think that um, that really lent itself to reading out loud. I don't know that I would read it as attentively, um, those long descriptions, I don't know that I would read as attentively if I were just reading it to myself. But it, it, uh, reading it out loud, you really hear the, the poetry in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time. Is that good for you guys? You feel complete? Great. <laughs> All right, we plunge into koans next, and that's going to be an adventure. <laughs> yeah. What do you imagine to be the recording of the koans? What do you mean? Uh, uh, will we record those in the same way, record the, the sessions? Uh, I don't see why not. I don't know what else we would do. I think um, that's probably... That's There's probably there's going to be the periods when we write. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have a little bit different format. Did I talk about the format before? Mm -hmm. No. Oh, okay. So let me talk. Yeah, about I don't remember. Yeah, I'll, um, I will, uh, I'll send something out about the format also, but, um, Let's see if I can find where I said this. Uh, um, I actually had a kind of an idea about that. Um, well, um, that we would take only one of those koans a week and that we would do a little bit of uh, a tiny little bit of writing around them. Um, and, uh, and then we would read the commentary that uh, Guo Gu makes for each koan. So after we've had a chance to write a little bit and reflect a little bit, um, let's see, I'm just looking here. I can't remember exactly when I sent this. I sent this off to Kim to see what his thoughts were about it. Um, Few but, of us went to, um, Hidden Lamp with Thupaya on Saturday. And oh, that, yeah. was, that was an interesting experience, how she led us through it. How did she do it? I mean, was she, she talking about koans or? Yeah, but rather than, than the, the way the, the koan was in the book with a short part of the koan and, and the commentary, we uh -huh. just read the whole, the whole koan and then we wrote about one line that struck us. Oh, right. Uh -huh. And then we went into breakout groups. 
And it was interesting that in some break, Nancy and I were in the same breakout group, which was fun, of 100, 172 people. Wow. Um, but sometimes um, everyone picked the same line in some groups, and in some they picked different lines. But it, it was interesting. Do you remember anything else, Nancy, that was particular? Uh Mm, yeah, I think it, uh, it's almost that. Oh, yeah. Um, we have five minutes before writing to like, read. Oh, um, that, was, that was, yeah, that was very good, I think, that we didn't write immediately, but there was this period of meditation after yeah, yeah. reading the koan. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good idea. So, Even then, I realized that I, I kept falling in and other people too to this idea of figuring it out. Yeah, it's hard to avoid that. Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's, it's so hard. Um, yeah. It seems to be our nature. Yeah, or yeah. Or mine at least. Yeah, yeah, and so it's gotta be defeated somehow, you know? Uh, so somehow we have to figure out the ways that we slow things down or uh, upend the idea that we're going to figure something out about it. Yeah. So anyway, I'll find it and I'll send it out and people can see what the format is likely to be. It's in there. It's in here somewhere. Uh, But it's basically um, taking just one of those koans and first uh, reading it and doing a little bit of writing and a little reflection and then a little bit of discussion and then we'll read the commentary that Guru has for each one. So it'll take us a little longer to get through the book that way. And we'll see as we go along if that's a format that's working for us or if we want to do something different. All right? Okay. okay. Sounds okay. good. Bye. Right. Bye. Two weeks. Two Thank weeks. you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.